Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, uh, today on the podcast we have uh, Jason Michelli, uh, the author of the new book, Living in Sin. Uh, you remember him from a previous episode discussing his book, Cancer is Funny. Uh, you'll you'll get to that in a second. Uh, but before you do a couple items, uh, first of all, I have recently renounced my Luddite ways and embraced new forms of technology, specifically Spotify. So if you get your podcast through Spotify, you can find this podcast over there now. So go check it out. Uh, second thing, we haven't done a mailbag in a while. So uh, send in your questions, uh, maybe mailbag time uh, coming around the corner. Uh, we might do it with someone special. We might, I don't know when I'm going to do it. But if you uh, if you have mailbag questions, you want to send them in, uh, hit me up at Luke at Luke Norsworthy. Oh, I think it's .com. I think that's right. Mm. Let me, I, I, I should know that. I should know my own email address. But that's that's right. Uh, Luke at LukeNorsworthy.com. Send them in, and then we will uh, do the podcast uh, talking about the mailbag at some point. And I double-checked it. Is that Luke at LukeNorsworthy.com. So uh, email them over to me, and uh, without further ado, here is Jason and Shelley. The in- it's the intern's fault. I had an intern last summer. Oh, my goodness. That guy was a train wreck train wreck no he wasn't he wasn't bad that bad okay friends welcome welcome back to the show uh jason michelli second time on at least second time right at least second time i here's do you know conan o'brien i mean not personally but you you know who he is i have heard of conan O'Brien. he went to he went to harvard you went to princeton so i figured you ivy league people would know each other (laughs) uh no just you know uh, well, anyway, irregardlessly, I think he's he, also like 15 years older than me. That's the only reason you don't know because <laughs> he's 15 years older. That's it. That's it. That's the only reason. the the the, the late show he's on still exists, but no one else exists. He has a new podcast. He does. Uh, ever, Conan do needs you know a friend. Yeah, and so what I want to do is I kind of want to channel that and ask a simple question. Um, I feel like we should be friends, but we're not. What do you think would need to happen for us to become friends? Either uh, you relocating to Washington, D.C. or me moving to Texas. But like, I feel like we could be like long distance pen pals or something like that. I, I Okay, we can do that. Now that I have you your have email f- address. Do you have a phone? Like, like I've called you on your phone before, but like we could text and stuff. I, yeah, my phone number is one. No, I'm just joking. Um, I already have it. I, I just called you like, Hey, let's do the podcast that, uh, but I feel like, I feel like, uh, like I like you and I we like could you be too. friends and I feel like, I mean, I could be a good influence on you. I think there's things <laughs> I can help you with. Um, you know, and I, I feel like you would help me too, like feel good about myself as like a Christian. Cause I, I read your book and I'm like, Oh, like I, sometimes I feel like, I, I don't know how, how good my chances are to get in heaven but then i like i read your book i'm like oh yeah like that i i don't need to compare myself to like i don't know like renee brown but if i can compare myself to you it's like (laughs) i i feel like i've got a shot (laughs) does that sound right yeah i I think yeah yeah that it's a compliment i i like that i so you have a new book out living in sin the last time we had a podcast we talked about your book but um um like i didn't have the book and we, <laughs> we, it was kind of like a spur of the moment. So I didn't read it, what I'm saying, but like the cover was really nice and all that. And it looked, it was a good, I quote, I reference you in my book. Let's go back I, to the friend I, thing. I, 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 
Uh, well, I didn't quote you. That's my point. Like I, I did read like, your quote in your book, which I did read when I interviewed you for your book. Oh, I thought you said I read the quote about me in your book. <laughs> That's the only part I read. <laughs> but okay, so I read your book and I thought, I really lo- like this is a well-written book. Like it's, uh, there's life in it. There's, it's, it's relatable. I mean, not like for good people, not relatable, but like the stories, <laughs> there's stories like they're, they're funny. They're well-told. You're like an endearing writer. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I, that's what, that's the impetus for this. I feel like after this, my goal is for you, like, yeah, we're, me and Luke are going to be friends more. I, I, I often think when I listen to Newsworthy with Norseworthy that, uh, yeah, that. you and I are uh, kindred spirits. Okay. You're like the sunny version of me, the sunnier, better looking <laughs> version of, of, of me. Less cancery as well <laughs> um but yeah no and i'm and i'm glad that you know yeah, do you feel right. like that comment just turned the tables and now you're the better person i feel like making a cancer <laughs> joke puts you back in the driver's seat of best person i uh, no you're fine you're that's good. not you're good say much the in your book you said you've done hundreds of uh funerals and weddings you've done more funerals than weddings though yes by far how, give me the number get, that you're thinking. Uh, I I think it's probably I, I did this a couple of years ago. I, I averaged, um, yeah. So I, I I think anywhere between four and five hundred funerals, um, and then weddings. You know, twenty years times probably five weddings a year. Good average, about a hundred. I feel like your funeral number is. Not just high, but it's like astronomically higher than most <laughs> preachers I know. Is there, do you have like some Dexter thing going on? Are you, <laughs> are you part of the drive for needing that many funerals? Like, how, don't you feel like that's a big number? I am uh, like the Grim Reaper when it comes to blessing of the animal services. Um, <laughs> like lots and lots of bad luck stories after, you know, I blessed someone's like dog or cat or lizard or whatever they mm. bring to the church yard. Maybe I could have you bless my dog. Like, well, you, you, you blessed Rusty and then he ran away <laughs> on Tuesday. That's what, Yeah. Uh, no, I, uh, so I was, uh, at a large church outside of DC for, uh, 14 years. And so, um, that church had a lot of, um, so it had a lot of older folks in it. Um, but it also had a lot, a large constituency of people who thought of it as their church, even though they weren't there, um, oh, okay. gotcha. you know, and it, it played a certain role in the community. And gotcha. so, yeah. Okay. And so, um, while I feel comfortable turning away strangers for weddings, I do not feel comfortable turning away strangers for funerals. So. Because? I, you know, it's a good Christian practice to get the dead where they need to be. But you don't, why do you not, in some ways, weddings seem like there's, you know, like you, you could connect to them and maybe they could join your church. If they're dead, they're not like ever going to be a part of the community. There, there, there is that. Community. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there, there, there is no, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a harder evangelism mechanism at a funeral. But, you know, I, I mean, the way I think about it is, you know, at a funeral, I'm the one making the promises rather than at a wedding. The other mm. two are making promises and I'm uncomfortable, um, particularly in a church climate where, you know, people in, in mainline churches are arguing over, you know, who gets to get married and blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't think we do ourselves any, any good by 
um, making light of the two people who are making promises and whether or not they're lying and making a mockery of, of the vows. Hmm. And so, and so I, uh, I'm pretty strict about who I marry. What is the filter? Uh, I need to um, know them, um, you know, through the church community. Um, I need to know that, you know, they are, you know, serious baptized Christians that, you know, I don't expect them to be like perfect husband and wife by virtue of being Christian, but I, I expect them to to take the promises that they're making with each other seriously enough to, um, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I like my Saturdays way too much to pimp myself out as though I were a photographer or a florist or, you know, one of the other part of the wedding party. Yeah. So there, there's a discussion that some of people in our profession have with, uh, like, what is my role in, in the ceremony? Like, do I have the power vested in you by something sacred to pronounce something? And therefore you have to take it with the level of severity and uh, seriousness that you obviously take it with uh, to not uh, be cavalier about who you pronounce that. Right. And then others see this as it's going to happen regardless. And so I want to be, uh, you know, positive representation of God in a, um, you know, a significant part of someone's life. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I think I mean I I respect people who take that position too. Um, it's just uh, I like my position, and my position protects my Saturdays too. Yeah, no, I I, I mean honestly, you got kids. I've I've got kids. It's you, no one ever considers like it, it's your entire weekend is gone when you do a wedding. Oh but gosh, you're, mm-hmm. but you're signed up for every funeral, and yeah. you're doing every one that people ask. For me, funerals cost me a whole lot more. And maybe it's because I am the more sunnier side of the coin between you and me. And to, to truly step into a funeral, it requires me to go to a place. Maybe I'm not us- like usually there or, or I, I, I mean, there's a level of emotional investment for me. It, is that similar to you or, or yours always negative? So you're good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and I mean, different funerals have different emotional ranges, obviously given the circumstances and the age and things like that. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, and I don't do everyone. I, I mean, I, I think it's important for the church to do them. And so if it's not, I, you know, another pastor, but um, yeah, I, I do think that the value of funerals is they are occasions where you can re- rehearse um, and recall the primary story of Christians that I think maybe too often we take for granted on Sunday morning. Um, and so, you know, when there's a dead guy at the center of the room, you've got everyone's attention already anyway. And now mm-hmm. you can, um, now you can reconvert them to the story that they've been inoculated against, even though they don't know it. What do you think the main story that needs to be told in a funeral is? Uh, death and resurrection, new creation. Um, you know, you are an embodied incarnate creature that God, uh, has declared good and will make good again. And, you know, you are not the, the true part of you is not some spirit inside of you that is now free to go like, you know, be up in heaven somewhere. Um, all that nonsense that all, you know, like the pop Gnosticism that everybody has by virtue of being a, a Western cultured person. Um, mm-hmm. so, so a funeral is a good place to, you know, they're, they're already jarred to attention, um, emotionally. And so you can kind of, um, you know, evangelize them. And you want them to leave with the idea, new creation, death, burial, resurrection. Like, do you have like, this is the refrain that I'm going to say over and over again that I want everyone to hear at every, every funeral I do. 
Uh, I do. I mean, I use First Corinthians fifteen at every one. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I like to connect the Lazarus story and and the garden story. Um, you know, connect the garden story with the first garden story, um, mm-hmm. and just you know, and not to like critique the kind of the superstitions that they have in a negative way, but to to make them realize the Christian gospel is is a whole lot bigger, and therefore is a lot better um, than maybe they realize. No, no. Okay, uh, your book is not about funerals. It's about not weddings, actually. Uh, so this is a terrible intro. Uh, but you're the one who said that you like funerals more than weddings, but then you wrote a book about marriage. So, I mean, that's that's on you, 100%. That's well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, like, you know, like for Christians, divorce isn't an option, but maybe homicide is. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, so maybe funerals is not an irrelevant topic. Oh, goodness. Uh Okay, well, that's that's from you, not me. Uh, just for the record, uh, <laughs> uh, I do not encourage or prescribe that as a suitable option. Divorce is better than killing your spouse. Uh, I just want want to be crystal clear on that one. I'm a um, preacher. I like to deal in wild exaggerations. <laughs> and you, like the beginning of your book, is hey, I'm foul mouthed, and uh, there's a re- there's a reason for it, which I'm going to try to convince you, which. Maybe someone will believe, but uh, like you're just setting the tone, like this is kind of my voice. And so you will say stuff like that. And that's people, people know what they're getting when they read your book. Uh, I mean, I, I do think it's important that, um, you know, I mean, Christians believe in the incarnation. And, and so I, I think it's important for us to, to model what it's like to be Christian and to follow Jesus uh, in our own skin and in our own lives. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't like speak wildly or crassly just, you know, for shits and giggles, but just, I, I, you know, I want to be, you know, like everybody, I mean, especially in Texas, right? Like every preacher has like a preacher's voice and a preacher's persona that they mm-hmm. adopt in the, in the pulpit or on the stage. And, and as the Lord intended, my brother. Yeah. Like it's like, and, and, and mainline Christians do it too. Like when they're like, even when they're like doing the announcements, you're like, well, who, who are you? Like the, <laughs> You know, this like, let us now, like, no one talks that way. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just want, um, yeah, to, to, I want to try to like tonally cut that distance between who I am and who the reader is. Yeah. I, I feel like for some, it could come across as being more honest and you're not putting on the air of, you know, you're a pastor or you're a preacher and this is what you're supposed to sound like. And I, I know there's a degree of distance that people feel because of what we do and especially with the fancy clothes that you get to wear that mm-hmm. there is an us in them and I hope people connect to you. So anyway, you're, you're a good storyteller and, uh, and it's important too that the, the, the dis like, you know, pastors and preachers are like the distinction is one of role, not one of like, you know, being. Yeah. 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 That's good. I don't think for the most part, people don't act that way though. Like we, there's an assumption mm-hmm. that the role is who you are. And that's, I mean, you're called, and you, but a lot of people are called by God to be faithful. And we're, I mean, I think everyone is, is what I mean by that. So anyway, uh, enough about your foul mouth. I mean, it is what it is. And uh, if people read my book, they know I referred to you as a foul mouth <laughs> person. So like, that's what they're getting into. Um, okay. In your book, you, um, it's, it's a book about marriage, but there is a lot of content about um your I mean, your situation, your diagnosis with um, mm-hmm. um, incurable cancer, that's the phrase to use, right? Yep. It's pretty, 
dark phrase. Um, but uh, I mean, I feel like there should be a better way to put that. Like, uh, <laughs> I could have come up with something better than that. That, like, I'm not your doctor, but I would say, um, you know, your brownie life- face cancer. Yeah, your lifelong buddy cancer. Uh, big C. You know, I don't know. Like, make it out like it's a, it's a, it's a backpack. Okay, whatever. Um, y- but you say over and over again that there, not over, but you mentioned that there is kind of an assumption that people have like, oh, you went through this or you, you had the diagnosis and now you have extra time or whatever that is supposed to mean. And you therefore should have this realization that, you know, everything's a gift and you should, you know, never, you know, just sit at home and watch TV at night and because you're going to live into every moment. But I, I think one of the things that we know about human nature is that everything becomes normal at some point. Mm-hmm. And like this, this unique and special eventually becomes the everyday. And somehow that, that can even happen with the diagnosis you have. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the way I tried to frame it in my book, Living in Sin, um, is that, you know, uh, my diagnosis brought a particular stress upon our marriage that may, is, is different you know, in kind, but not in degree from what every relationship experiences. And so, you know, when I thought I was going to die and I didn't, I made a bucket list because like, that's what all the cancer movies tell you to do. Um, you know, and, and like bucket lists are like new year's resolutions. And the only consistent thing about us is our inconsistency. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, you know, and, and I didn't feel the freedom in, as we entered this new place in our marriage, having, you know, expected death and, and we didn't have that. You know, so I get this reprieve from death and I feel this pressure now to have every moment of our marriage be extraordinary, which is an extraordinary burden to put on any marriage. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, and, I, and I've married enough couples to know that they all feel this burden that their relationship is supposed to be extraordinary and extraordinary is defined by whatever movie or, you know, other relationships of people they know and, and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, through the book, I tried to narrate how this burden of expectations that was, you know, I placed upon us or cancer placed upon us or survival placed upon us, um, it kind of then played out in some not helpful, um, but, you know, truthful ways. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go from there to give, uh, the, the three, uh, wisdom proverbs that if people believe in their marriage is always going to be happy. And, uh, those three things that, no, you didn't do that at all. Uh, I, I feel like there should have been something like, this is how you're always going to be happy. And, um, but again, you, you didn't ask me because we're not good enough friends for you to ask me how to write your book. Um, you, you tell this, uh, this story about, um, a couple and, you know, they want to do their own vows and you and all the, uh, um, bedside manners one would expect from you to have, uh, you're not a big fan of the unique and creative vows they've come up with. And uh, you tie them to, uh, you know, the words of scripture. And this gentleman uh, seems to think that uh, Jesus doesn't really have a whole lot to say about marriage. Um, (laughs) And then he questions Jesus' sexuality or maybe that is a pejorative term. I don't know. But your point was that we need something bigger than just our own emotions that, that are going to anchor us in, in vows. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think um, that it's, it's really remarkable that so many 
couples getting married think they can one up Thomas Cramner, <laughs> you know, when it comes to, to the vows, they're going to come up like, right. Um, but invariably, you know, what, uh, you know, the self-written vows almost always center around um, how the bride and groom feel about each other. Yep. And so it's, it's all couched in, in their love and their feelings of love. And, and it's remarkable that the Christian service of marriage um, that is common across traditions, somewhat different, but pretty standard um, doesn't really give a rip about <laughs> about how they feel about each other, and it really only proposes like it wants to you know know what they propose to do about each other, given the fact that they're married. Married, yeah. um, and so it's not about feelings of love; it's about faithfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and again, that's why I think it's important for for me as a pastor to know that the people getting married are taking those promises seriously, um, because you know, I mean that is it's not unlike the gospel when it's, it, it is that promise outside of ourselves um, mm-hmm. that we can, we can turn to and grab a hold of um, in moments of stress and doubt and, you know, anger. Yeah. I think we can all see that our emotions being the centerpiece of our commitment for someone else is going to be flawed. And, you know, there's a reason the words of scripture say submit to one another, not out of reverence for them, but out of reverence for Christ. Cause Yep. Not, I, I don't always give my wife a reason to submit to me out of reverence for the kind of person I am. I don't do that. Like, I'm, I'm not perfect. Um, clearly, you, you're not either. Um, but what does that practice look like? I mean, we get that our emotions are, are short-sighted, but at least they're real to us. And they seem like, like almost tangible to us. But a commitment to God, how, how does that influence what I'm going to do in a moment of, you know, anger or frustration or disappointment with a spouse. Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. So I do think it's, a, you know, so like whether you call marriage a sacrament or a covenant or a means of grace, I, I think there, there is a sense in which all Christians understand the vocation of marriage to be parabolic of how God loves us. And therefore it's how we grow in faith and, right. and grace. Um, you know, and, and, I, and so I think, you know, I made a joke about divorce earlier, but there's this sense in which, um, you know, bride and groom are promising one another that they're not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, you know, so they're, they're willingly locking themselves in a cage. Um, and, and, and there's like great freedom in that because, you know, it's, it's when you know the other person's not going to go anywhere that you have the freedom to be made vulnerable and to make yourself vulnerable. Um, And and so, you know, like, right. You know, like two people who are in love, like that's the last time, like you should ever be making a life consequential decision. Um, You know, (laughs) like, I mean, like you shouldn't even buy a car when you're like in love with someone, but much less like tie yourself to another human being, another sinner. Um, You know, but and and like the and the fallacy of that too is like not only do you not know the person that you're getting married to, like you don't really know who you are Mm -hmm. um, until you know life with another person has revealed who you you are. And so, you know, so marriage is the process by which we get to know the stranger that that we call ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, And 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 so I think you know where where the you know the idea like the the Christian foundation then to that is is that you know like the two of you tr- put your trust in these promises and, and in those promises is a freedom to 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 be made new by the perceptions of the other mm-hmm. yeah the 
the stranger that we think we marry, also the strangers ourselves. You, you mm. got married. I, uh, you and your wife met in high school on the swim team. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's romantic. Um, One look at me in a speedo, and she's a goner. <laughs> well, I met my wife in bowling class. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think that's equally romantic as you in a speedo. Uh, but either way, I mean, you were teenager. I was. Uh, my wife and I were, were barely not teenagers anymore when we met. And there's no way you know who you are in, in, in that place. And in some ways, you don't really know who you are until years down the road, especially if you got married young. And you make this line in there about how much, how you like recommitment ceremonies to some degree more than normal weddings. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, and this is advice I give brides and grooms before they get married too, is, is that, um, you know, when you say I do to someone, you're also saying I do to whatever and who, whoever they will become mm-hmm. five, 10, 20 years down the road. And, and so I, I like recommittal services better because they're under no sentimental illusions about who the other person is um, or who they are. Um, and, and so like, you know, life together and marriage together has exposed the worst sides of themselves and those worst sides have, have been loved n- nonetheless. Yeah. And so, and so I think that it's when you, it's when a marriage gets to that point that it, it most approximates how we're loved by God. Mm-hmm. You, you tell a story about, uh, your, uh, your inability not to buy, um, and I'm just going to say stupid stuff. Uh, that's not the word that you use. <laughs> uh, your nomenclature is a little bit more dumb. That's not again. Thank <laughs> you for, uh, keeping my job. I don't have a, uh, you know, a, a big church that tells me that I get to stay there. I actually have like <laughs> autonomous congregations that can let me go. unlike you. Um, so anyway, uh, but y- y- your wife sees your, your fallibility to buying useless junk mm-hmm. and to her, she, but I still know you. And, and you tell a story that's a, a, a little bit more damning than uh, just buying a Vitamix, but uh, issues with, taxes not paying them and uh i feel like i just like accused you of something but it was in your book you wrote it i'm not i'm not like slandering your name you slander by putting there but in those moments she actually sees the fallibility that you have and just like every one of us have our own fallibility and it's in those moments that we actually are truly loved for the first time and you can't love that person if you don't know that person's there yeah yeah and i think it's um the way I put it in the introduction is, you know, rather than a Christian book about marriage, because those are like a dime a dozen, I, w- I wanted to write a marriage book about Christianity. And so I wanted to show vignettes from my marriage that I, I don't think, you know, I think every- I tried to make them specific to us because I think that which is particular is most universal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I think the way it helps, you know, these scenes from anyone's marriage help you understand what it means to be a Christian is that, you know, in large part, the way that we grow in grace is through these experiences of receiving a forgiveness that we absolutely don't deserve. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, there's a, like a, this is too nerdy, but you know, there's a, there's an existential component to like Martin Luther's theology that I think lends itself really well to relationships. And so I've, I've leaned into that. Uh, Tell me more. Book. Um, you know, in terms of the expectations of God accusing us, and, and um, forcing us to, to throw ourselves on Christ's mercy, I think is, is not unlike the expectations that the world places upon us when it comes to our relationships. Um, and that if we don't get to the point where we just resort to another's forgiveness, um, you know, 
we're, we just are overwhelmed. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think, so, that, so that's kind of the frame I've tried to, to, to think about marriage. Yeah. You reference uh, Spuford. Uh, what is this? Francis Spuford's mm-hmm. uh, definition of sin, which is the human potential to, um, we'll just say, mess things up. <laughs> and uh, friend of the show, Francis Spuford. And I, I've really loved his definition because in a, a world that has kind of had the word sin be watered down to simply a mistake or, oh, you know, I, uh, it's like the politician who confesses, uh, yeah, mistakes have been made. And it's it, it's such a... Uh, a word that's meaning has been muted. That yeah, it's either diluted or it's like attached to some horrible depiction of a wrathful father. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so how, how do you help people see what sin is in the confines of marriage? I mean, I, I think, you know, what, what the language of sin is trying to do in scripture is name is to rightly name the wrongness of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we all know that that's true. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and, and, you know, but like, we're not independent or immune from that wrongness and it plays out in, in our relationships, you know, most especially. And so, you know, like everyone who's married knows what it's like to have really good, sincere intentions for what you want to be and what you want to do with the person that you love. And, and despite your best intentions can't make, make that happen or yep. that you, you, you know, continually find yourself doing uh, to quote Paul, that which you you know don't want to do, um, and so I think yeah, I, I think everyone can. Re- I mean, if 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 the law is written on everyone's heart, as Saint Paul says, then everyone can, in some sense, relate to you know sin as naming our our you know our propensity to f things up. Hmm. Uh, so the language of scripture is this idea of leave and cleave, and. Uh, Here's a line you have about forgiveness that you say all is forgiven leaves you naked for all the sympathy you felt you merited. And the, sometimes we feel, feel like, okay, I've been wronged and I have this sense of rightness or I've been the one who does everything right. And therefore, because of that, my rightness enables me to act and and feel a certain way. Um, use this definition of self-righteousness, not like I'm a Pharisee and because I, you know, I don't sin, therefore I'm self, but like I have merited my significance either by what has been wrong to me or what I have done right. What does that do to a relationship when that's your attitude? It's, it's poisonous. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I mean, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's poisonous. And, and I think marriage is a good place to understand how offensive grace is generally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because, you know, you know, when your spouse forgives you, like your immediate impulse then is to want to, to, to reciprocate it in a way that, uh, evens the scales out again so that you're, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, to, especially like when you're, like I mentioned in the book, like when you're forgiven and your spouse tells you like, you know, there's nothing you can do to make, make it better. Just, just like, I forgive you. Like that's mm-hmm. a really disarming um, disempowering sensation, um, yeah. you know, and, and, but, but this, like the need to reciprocate and balance the scales, um, just locks you into this tit for tat scorekeeping that is, is deadly. Yeah. 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 And it, it seems like whenever you do play that game of, well, you do this to me, therefore I get to do that. Um, like the thing is, it's going to be a train wreck because that that's a game that, that no one's going to win. And 
and even when y- you bring stuff in to relationship, you, you talk about uh, very openly about y- your family of origin and mm-hmm. many of the flaws uh, and, and the struggles that your dad had with his uh, alcohol addiction, uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it caused you to have this sense like you merited uh, to, to be treated a certain way because you're a survivor of that. Am I, is that, am I saying that somewhat right? No, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think, um, and I, and I think everybody, everyone who's grown up in that sort of situation, like, you know, like the scars that you have become like stories that you tell, mm-hmm. you know, and they form your identity. Um, and then, you know, and then, you know, too, when you get older and you find yourself replicating like mistakes of your own, um, not only does that change how you've perceived yourself, it, it, it forces you to see other people with a, a degree of charity and forgiveness that um, isn't, isn't always welcome. Yeah. And, and so the idea of leaving Cleve is that it, in some ways I, I would hear that and go, if, if I was coming from, from your family and my family had different struggles than your family, but leaving Cleve is like, Oh, well that's, you know, that's good news. Cause I don't have to cleave to, you know, th- these uh, cycles of abuse that are passed down. Uh, but in also it, it causes you to, to leave your sense of sense of, of, of righteousness of, Hey, this is what I've got going. This is what yeah. I did. This is what I overcame. And that's equally disturbing. Yeah. I, and, 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 and I think that's just, you know, like, even in normal families, I, I, it's, you know, it's one of the exercises I try to do with couples is, is to, you know, is to name the, you know, name the positive things that you learned from your parents' marriages um, mm-hmm. that you want to truck into your new relationship. But, but name the things that you don't want, you don't want to replicate. Um, because if, if you're not intentional about naming them and, 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 you know, identifying ways to not bring them into your marriage, they're like, they're going to show up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, that, and that can be as simple as like, you know, like my mom always expects this on Christmas and now you have to participate in that. And, you know, like your new wife doesn't want to do that. And so, um, so they can be like really simple things um, or they can be really, you know, damaging things. Yeah. And it seems like that's the part of self-awareness that in some ways marriage is the great revealer of those things that this reveals uh, some of the, you know, the, the, the funny nuances that you bring to what you think family Christmas is supposed to be. Oh, we're supposed to have a live tree or no, we're going to have a fake tree or whatever. Like that, that, you know, that's kind of funny, but it also reveals on a more deep level, the dysfunction that's within your soul. And then it, it's from there that you have the invitation. Like I, I will actually love who you really are, not who I thought you were going to be or not who you presented yourself to be. And obviously with your medical condition, your wife, there's no way she would have, could have known what she was, you know, signing up for. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a line in the book in which uh, she says, like you said, you didn't sign up for this. She goes, what? No. Or she's at the line is, yes, I did. Or if it makes it easier for you, I do sign up for this. Mm -hmm. When, when she says that to you, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Um, (laughs) Guilt. Why? Why guilt? Um, yeah, um, yeah, no one wants to be a burden to someone, Hmm. even though everyone's a burden to somebody. Um, yeah, no, I, I, it's, um, yeah, I mean, and and that's, you know, that's one of the helpful lines I have in the book. Um, you know, expectations are the enemies of love and, and I, and I do, you know, and I, I, 
you know, and, and that can be unhelpful, unrealistic, optimistic expectations for what, you know, life will be. And, but it can also be um, the burden of waiting for the other shoe to drop is not, mm. not always fun. And, and, and it feels, um, it can be guilt inducing to realize that, you know, that other shoe is tied to someone else because of you. Hmm. So when you're thinking through your medical condition, I, I, obviously it, it affects your family, affects your kids and there's guilt that you're putting them through this. And she says, no, I, I do sign up for this. Is there any way for her words to be louder than the guilt that you feel? Oh, they, yeah. I mean, absolutely. They are. Um, absolutely. They are. Uh, um, and that's where, you know, I, you know, uh, to get back to like this idea of like, you know, the promise I, I, it's um, no, it's, 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 it's liberating to realize um, that you are loved in spite of all the, the crap that comes along with you. First of all, I, I know how hard that was for you not to say a different <laughs> word. That's very charitable of you <laughs> to, to not. Um, but I, it, it, for for my feeling, the the truest picture of who I am is one that only my wife has seen. Mm-hmm. For her to choose to still love me and to still uh, want to be married to me is a display of love in a way that I mean, I, I know my parents love me unconditionally, but like I'm not a burden on them mm-hmm. now in the same way. Like when you're when you're a kid, you're a burden on your parents, but often it's like a cute thing until you're a teenager, I guess. <laughs> but like when you're a grown person and you shouldn't do this stuff and you shouldn't cause the issues and you shouldn't, you know, n- not feel something out. You shouldn't not. It, it, that's an opportunity to finally to, to be loved in a way that you can't anywhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's, it's, um, and you know, and again, I think that's, what's great about the traditional ancient vows is, is that they, like they begin with the bad news, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, like sickness and health, you know, poverty, like all this stuff, you know, can come to you. Some of it will definitely come to you. And if not, you're going to die, <laughs> um, you know? And so it's, it's, you know, it's, I think C.S. Lewis has this, this image of, you know, marriage and, and love is not, not being two people looking at each, uh, at each other, but two people standing shoulder to shoulder looking, you know, at the same thing together. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's sort of accompaniment uh, into the future no matter what it brings. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's powerful. And, and it's a more realistic picture of, you know, what, what marriage is obviously your title. Of course it has to be mildly offensive living in sin. I mean, it's you, it's in, it's on brand. It's on brand, <laughs> but the deeper, more substantial level is it's not talking about cohabitation. It's talking about the idea that, like every one of us is a sinner and that has to be the foundation for what we're going to build upon is that none of us are impervious to this thing that pulls us away from who God wants us to be. Yeah. And, and that the, the, the vulnerability and the, the unmasking that marriage should do for a couple makes marriage um, the best vehicle <laughs> for sin to, to be exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like, I mean, that's the thing, like, you know, like two people, quote unquote, living in sin who aren't not married. So, so I mean, there, there is no promissory thing holding them together. 
Um, you know, yeah. and, and therefore, um, you know, ideally at least, or I, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I would say that like, you know, vulnerability cannot blossom in that environment to the extent that it can, um, with a forever promise. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel like I've read this. I don't know if I can quote the source or anything, but couples who live together first often have, uh, marriages that don't last as long. Now, I would love for someone to actually confirm that stat or not, but it seems that the commitment of I'm going to be with you forever is, is the only like training ground for real love to, to grow out of. Yeah. I mean, I definitely know it's true that couples who uh, have already been living together and get married, like invariably they want to tell me, well, nothing's really going to change. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Keep telling yourself that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I've got to go. Um, I'm not saying it's your fault uh, for taking this long for the podcast to start because of your technical difficulties, but um, it, it was your intern's fault. So it's not your fault. We're not going to. It's okay. You. The name of the book is Living in Sin. <laughs> there by it was. Jason Michelli. That was your preacher voice. Do you, <laughs> okay, now, now we've got 40 minutes of this. Do you feel like, what are the chances that I get a text from you next week? Um, 100%. That's what I wanted to hear. That's exactly what I want to hear. One hundred percent. That was good. Um, All right, I'm looking forward to that. And next time in Austin, I'll have more time, and I'll. We should get. See, there. look at this. Look at this. I even forgot about that. I had forgiven you for, for not seeing me when you were down here. I've had too oh. many just like less than forty eight hour trips. So. Well, you know what? Jesus spent less than 72 hours in the grave, <laughs> but he didn't forget all of us. And, uh, we're going to end on that. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.